I remember a number of years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll read an article about the advantages of walking versus running. The article said, walking places less stress on your body, there is less risk of injury, and if you walk fast enough, say five miles an hour for 45 minutes or more, you can achieve just as much as if you were running. But the last sentence of the article is what caught my attention. The writer said, walking is not a glamour sport. It has none of the panache of, let's say, mountain climbing. Walking sounds so humdrum, so pedestrian, but at the right pace and with regularity, it can be the best thing you can do for your body. Chuck then made this application to the Christian life. He said, Christian, living the Christian life is not glamorous. Walking with God has none of the panache of, say, miraculous healings or speaking in tongues or being slain in the Spirit. Walking with God sounds so humdrum, so pedestrian, but done at the right pace and with regularity, walking with God can be the best thing you can do for your soul. Genesis 17 provides for us a great example of what it means to walk with God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 17 as we discover four components of walking with your God. Now remember, last time we saw how Abraham and Sarah had made the mistake of actually running ahead of God. They were impatient with God fulfilling his promise about the promise of a child, and so they had that uh, arrangement with Hagar that resulted in the birth of Ishmael, and it ended up being a disaster for Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. They understood, finally, the problem of running ahead of God. Now, you have to admit, up to this point, this story of Abraham's life has been pretty exciting. I mean, it starts with a supernatural voice from heaven calling Abraham out of a foreign land to a land that he had never seen before. It included a battle with the kings of the east, a night of illicit sex with a slave girl, and finally the birth of a child. And it doesn't stop there. Next time it gets even more exciting, Genesis 18, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What could be more exciting than that? But between chapter 16 and 18, there's chapter 17. And if you read this chapter, it seems like nothing's really going on in the chapter. It's just about a conversation God has with Abraham about walking with him. Now, I have to admit to you, I almost skipped this chapter. I thought it was so dull, I didn't want to share it with you. I was ready to, you know, get to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, any good preacher worth his salt could make something out of that. But walking with God, why talk about that? Because if done with regularity, it's the best thing you can do for your spiritual health. If I had skipped this chapter, I would have missed some important truths about walking with God. You know, that word walking is one of the most common metaphors in Scripture for a relationship with God. It's used 300 times in the Old Testament. Remember Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to what? Walk humbly with your God. 
We see the same thing in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul says, as therefore you have received Christ Jesus, what does it say? Walk in him. There's nothing exciting about walking, I'll admit, but that's what the Christian life is all about. I remember years ago, the late Eugene Peterson wrote a great book entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That describes the Christian life, moving in the same direction for a long period of time, and if you do so long enough, you'll get to your destination. That's what we're going to see today. What is it that's involved in walking with God? Again, chapter 17 reveals four components about walking with God. It begins with waiting on God's timing. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99, underline that, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now, there's a reason Abraham's age is given here, 99. Compare it to the last verse, verse 16 of the previous chapter. Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. So do the math. The last time Abram heard from God was when he was 86 years old. Now he's 99. 13 years without hearing a word from God. He had to wait to hear from God. That's not always easy. You know, I think about the story of Noah. Uh, some of our senior adults went up to the Ark Encounter a few months ago that I preach at every year. If you've seen that massive Noah's Ark that Ken Ham has built, I mean, it's unbelievable. The last time I went through it, this thought hit me that, you know, the time that elapsed between God's command to Noah to enter the ark and God's command to Noah to leave the ark, you know how much time passed? One year and 17 days. For a year and 17 days, Noah and his family were on that ark without hearing a word from God. All they heard was the thunder and the rain outside as that barge bobbed up and down on the water. Don't you think they must have been terrified? Don't you think they must have wondered, where are you, God? Have you forgotten about us? I think Abraham probably had that same experience. 13 years with no word from God. God, you called me to this land. Have you forgotten about me? You know, F.B. Meyer wrote 100 years ago in his biography of Abraham a truth that is still true today. He said, some people are ever on the outlook for divine appearances, for special manifestations, for celestial voices. Their life tends to be incessantly straining after some startling evidence of the nearness and the love of God. This feverishness is unwholesome and un. And, and mistaken. Such manifestations are indeed delightful, but they are meant as bright surprises and not as the rule of the Christian life. They are flung into our lives as a holiday into the school routine of a child. Yet, waiting on God to speak 
is to the heart what the long silence of winter is to the world of nature in preparing it for the outburst of spring. Now, let's be honest. We don't like waiting to hear from God. We want these constant evidences that he's there. We want to be hearing from him every day in some supernatural way. I think that's why churches and denominations that uh, talk about these supernatural occurrences all the time gain so many followers. That's something that appeals to us, and that's natural. And David cried out for it. He said in Psalm 28, 1, to you, O Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. And yet, most of the time, God doesn't appear in a supernatural way. Many times we have to wait. You know, last time I shared with you how God gave me a confirming sign that we were to go forward with this new campus. I told you about praying in the morning, early one morning, that God would give me a sign that day. Six hours later, he gave me that supernatural sign. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that that's the norm. It's not. I can count on one hand with fingers left over the number of times God has answered in a miraculous way that way. The same is true for all of us. Those things are the exceptions. If they were the rule of life, they wouldn't be called miracles, they'd be called normicles. But we call them miracles because they are so rare. What I'm saying to you is walking with God, first of all, begins with waiting on God's timing, waiting on Him to speak and act in His time, not on our timetable. Secondly, walking with God involves trusting in God's power trusting in God's power. Now remember, God called Abram when he was 60 years old and made a covenant with him that he would make him the father of a great nation. And his name, Abram, literally meant, write this down, exalted father, exalted father. So Abram finally makes it to the promised land when he's 75. He has that 15-year detour in Haran, but he finally makes it there when he was 75. His name was still Abram, exalted father. Now, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse points out that because he was a wealthy man living in Canaan, the promised land, he probably had a lot of water wells. Wealthy people had water wells. And it was the custom for people who needed to water their herds to ask the owner permission. And they would introduce themselves to one another. So here's a guy passing through with all of his animals, and he comes up to Abram and he says, my name is Alibaba. What is your name? And Abram says, my name is Abram. Oh, exalted father. How many children do you have? None. Well, how, well I didn't hear that. How many children do you have? None. <laughs> he couldn't contain his laughter. Your name is exalted father and you have no children. Abram and Sarah went through that for 10 years from age 75 to 85 for Abram. 10 years of humiliation of not having any children. You can understand why they were so anxious to have a child, even if it was with Hagar. And so, finally, they give birth and, and uh, Ishmael is born. Now, 13 years of silence. Abram is now 99, chapter 17 says, and God appears to Abram and says, 
you know that promise I made to you and Sarah? I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to give you a child, but I'm going to change your name just as a sign that I'm going to fulfill that promise. No longer will you be called Abram, exalted father. Your new name is Abraham. You know what that means? Father of a multitude. I'm sure Abram thought, oh no, more humiliation. He could just picture people saying, oh, you're the father of a multitude. How many children do you have? One, one. Now, Abraham could have become very discouraged, but he didn't. He kept trusting in God. We read that passage from Romans 4 today, which is a commentary on Abraham's story. Look at what Paul said in Romans 4, beginning with verse 18. In hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was almost 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Walking with God involves not only waiting on God's timing, but trusting in God's power. For these 13 years, he never lost hope that God would keep his problem. Why? Because first of all, I want you to notice what he focused on. He focused on the bleakness of his circumstances. He focused on the bleakness of his circumstances. Again, verse 19 of Romans 4 says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. (laughs) Can't you just picture it? He gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror. He said, I can't believe this. I look like a cast member from The Walking Dead. How am I going to have a child? And then he looks over at his wife, Sarah, who's 90 years old. He doesn't get any encouragement by looking at her. Her womb, as one person said, had become a tomb. She had no ability to give birth. And yet, his faith never wavered. Let me remind you, faith doesn't mean denying the reality of your current circumstances. Some of you here today, some of you in day one are watching this broadcast, your situation is bleak and it's getting more bleak every day. Your bank account is continuing to dissipate. Some of you are in a broken relationship and the distance between you and your loved one is getting farther and farther apart. Some of you have a rebellious child or grandchild and there is no sign whatsoever that their heart is warming toward you or to the things of God. Faith doesn't mean denying the reality of your circumstances. Abraham focused on the bleakness of his circumstances, but at the same time, he also focused on the greatness of his God. The greatness of his God. Look, if you compare your bleak circumstances to your own ability to change your circumstances, you're going to become discouraged. But Abraham didn't do that. He contemplated his own body the bleakness of his circumstances, but he compared it to the greatness of his God. Look at verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You know what gave Abraham courage? He believed in a God who was bigger than his circumstances. 
Do you believe in a God like that? A God who is bigger than whatever problems you're facing right now? I want to show you something very interesting. Look back at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the first time that name for God appears in the Bible. Up to this point, the name for God had been Elohim, referring to the God who creates everything. But now God identifies him as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Not only the God who creates everything, but the God who controls everything. It's one thing to believe in a God who created the sun and the moon. It's another thing to believe in a God who can cause the sun and the moon to stop still, just as what happened to Joshua many years after this. Do you realize God didn't just create you and put you in this world and left you alone? God is in control of every circumstance you're facing. Think about it. What circumstance, difficult circumstance, are you facing in your life right now that God couldn't change in an instance if he wanted to? God is sovereign. He is in control of everything that happens. Abraham believed that. He believed not in just Elohim, the God of nature, but the God El Shaddai who controls nature as well. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to wait on God's timing. It means to trust in God's power. Thirdly, it involves listening to God's voice. Look at Genesis 17, verse 3. Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him. Notice, it didn't say Abraham talked to God. It says God talked to Abraham. Now, we talk about prayer in terms of our talking to God, and we need to talk to God regularly. Nothing wrong with that, everything right with that. But where in your schedule is there time to allow God to speak to you? Not you speak to God, but God speak to you. Certainly, God speaks to us through his word. But when else do you have that you're quiet enough to allow God to speak to you? You may be saying, well, what do you mean, speak to me? What kind of things does God speak to me about? Let me mention four things God talks to you about if you're quiet enough to listen to him. First of all, sometimes he speaks to us about sins we need to abandon. Is there anything in our life displeasing to God? In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. In other words, God, shine the spotlight of your Holy Spirit into the darkest corners of my heart and see if there's anything that displeases you. Did you know that's one prayer God will answer 100% of the time? If you ask God to point out anything wrong in your life, he promises to do that. When you listen to God, listen for any sins that he wants you to abandon. Sometimes he speaks to us about relationships that need to be mended, broken relationships that we need to take the first step in healing. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 23 and 24? Therefore, if you are presenting your sacrifice at the altar and there remember that something has, someone has something against you, 
Leave your offering before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, people misinterpret this. Jesus didn't say if you're worshiping and you remember you have something against somebody else, leave your offering and go be reconciled to them. See if you can shake a confession out of them and make them admit their wrongdoing. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, if you're worshiping and you remember you have something against somebody else, forgive him right there in the pew. Let it go. Forgive that person. No, this is when you're worshiping and God brings to mind somebody you've wronged, somebody who has something against you. You're to take the first step to be reconciled to them. 1 Timothy 1.19 says one of the two essentials of the Christian life is a clear conscience. Do you know what a clear conscience is? It is the assurance that neither God nor anyone else can accuse you of a wrong you haven't attempted to make right. Do you have that assurance right now? Doesn't mean you're reconciled with everybody, but is there anybody who can accuse you of not attempting to make right a wrong you've committed against them? Take the steps to mend that relationship. Thirdly, sometimes God will speak to us about gifts that we need to offer to him. Remember Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians? He was encouraging them to give, and he said, remember the Macedonians, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testified that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Sometimes God will speak to you about a gift to give. There's no chance for Mission 1-8 to succeed unless everyone obey that still small voice God uses to prompt us about gifts. And finally, are there commands to follow? When God is speaking to us, we ought to listen to him for any specific commands that he is calling on us to follow. <clears throat> Psalm 119, verse 34, David prayed, give me understanding so that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Notice what David didn't say. He didn't say, give me understanding of your word, God, so that I can teach it to others. No, he said, give me understanding that I may observe what your word commands. <laughs> So I read that, the words of my old mentor, Howard Hendricks, keep running through my mind. He used to say all the time, men, God didn't give his word to make us smarter sinners. He gave us his word to make us more obedient disciples. That's what David is saying. Is there anything that I need to keep, any command you have? And as God spoke to Abram, he gave him a specific command to follow. Look at Genesis 17, beginning in verse 10. God said to Abram, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between you and me. Now, circumcision was the removal of 
the skin, the foreskin of the male organ. Interestingly, it had been used by pagans for years as a sign, a symbol of identification with a certain um, promise or a certain deity. But God took this pagan ritual and he attached a new meaning to it, much like baptism for Christians. Uh, baptism, not in every way, but in some ways like circumcision. It is an outward expression of an inward truth. When we're baptized, lots of pagans baptize people, but God said, I'm going to attach a new meaning to baptism. It is a sign that you have died to your old way of living and you're raised to a new way of living. Well, that was circumcision. It was a way of identifying with the promises of God. It was a way of symbolizing the removal of the sin nature. Now, of course, no physical act could remove the sin nature of a person. It was simply pointing to what Christ would do one day when he died on the cross. He circumcised not the foreskin, he circumcised our heart, the hardness of our heart of a sin nature. Colossians 2.11 says, and in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It was a physical act God told Abraham to engage in that symbolized a deep spiritual truth. And Abra how did Abraham respond to that command? This is the fourth element of walking with God. Walking with God means not just listening for God's voice, but also obeying God's commands. Now look at verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, underline that, as God had said to him. He obeyed God completely and he obeyed God immediately. Now, I'm gonna walk delicately here, but let me explain something to you about circumcision. In Abraham's day, this was the first account of circumcision in the Bible. In Abraham's day, there was no surgeon's scalpel. There was no anesthetic. There wasn't even any Tylenol. All there was was a sharp knife or the sharp end of a rock to perform circumcision with. If I were Abraham, I could have come up with all kinds of reasons <laughs> to think this over before I did what God commanded. But not Abraham. He had heard God speak and he obeyed instantly. It became a habit with him, listening and obeying. We'll see that in the weeks ahead when we get to Genesis 22, when God gives Abraham the greatest test of all, asking him to sacrifice his son Ishmael. What did Abraham do? Immediately, early the next morning, he took Ishmael, I mean, Isaac to the place of sacrifice. That's what God calls us to do. I think that explains why Abraham was called the friend of God, because he did what his heavenly father asked him to do. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. Let me ask you, are there commands God has asked you 
to fulfill that you haven't obeyed yet. You know, somebody said, well, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that trouble me, it's the things I do understand. There are some very clear commands of God to you right now that you've not yet obeyed. You know, somebody said it well when they said the whole Christian life can be summarized in three words. Pray and obey. Pray and obey. Pray and obey. It's not pray, weigh whether or not I'm going to do it, and then obey. It's pray and obey. That's the essence of walking with God. Waiting on God's timing, trusting in God's power, listening to God's voice, and obeying God's commands. Yes, I know. It's pedestrian. It's humdrum. But done with regularity, it's the best thing you can do for your spiritual health.